This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's uh, event, Haymarket event, on uh, pandemic uh, policing or protection. We're really excited about the conversation that we're going to be having tonight. Um, And my name is Andrea Ritchie, and for folks who can't see me, I am a light-skinned black woman with uh, purple glasses, curly hair, and a purple background behind me. Um, And I will be inviting my fellow panelists to describe themselves when they introduce themselves. Um, But first, we wanted to offer a little context for the conversation that we're having today. I'm a member of the COVID-19 Policing Project, along with uh, Derica Purnell, who co-founded it with me, Pascal Emmer, who is one of our primary researchers, and Hiram Rivera, who hosts the project at the Community Resource Hub. And we're in conversation today with Mark Lamont-Hill, the author of the book that you should buy right now while we're getting started. Um, We still hear pandemic policing protest and possibility available from Haymarket Books. Um, And the reason that we're all here tonight is because yesterday there were 152,000 COVID-19 cases. There were 100 people currently hospitalized. There were 4,000 COVID-related deaths yesterday. And as we know, there have been over 400,000 COVID-related deaths in less than a year. The rates of infection and death inside prisons and detention centers are continuing to skyrocket under devastating conditions. And while the number of cases and hospitalizations is dropping outside prison walls across the country, COVID deaths are continuing to rise by 10% or more in 21 states, many of which, like California and Illinois, are reopening or remaining open, even as a new, more contagious strain increases the risks of this already dangerous and deadly set of conditions. Meanwhile, only 200,000 people have been vaccinated in a rollout plagued by failures and politicized distribution. I just heard today an organizer in Texas say that they were told by the state that if they prioritized uh, vaccination of vulnerable populations, including black and low-income communities and elders, that they wouldn't get any vaccine at all. This country breathed a sigh of relief when President-elect, then President-elect Joe Biden, appointed a coronavirus task force populated by experts and praised a return to science. And we were hoping that we had finally and truly and authentically turned a corner, even as the death toll continued to rise. And on his first day in office, Biden enacted a series of COVID-19-related executive orders, including one enacting a federal mask mandate and creating incentives for states and localities to do the same, which begs the question, who's going to enforce this mandate and how? And at the same time, he's in the middle of shortchanging people on the $2,000 that he promised voters in Georgia and across the country as the country faces a looming eviction and foreclosure crisis, unprecedented unemployment and food insecurity. So we're going in now to the second year of a coronavirus pandemic, the unprecedented economic crisis that precipitated. We're in the middle of the ongoing pandemic of police violence that's as old as this country, and we're under a new federal administration, 
advancing climate catastrophe, and we're at a, a crossroads. How are we going to move forward? Is there going to be more pandemic policing and simultaneous abandonment of Black, Indigenous, incarcerated, disabled, low-income, and unhoused communities to the ravages of a deadly pandemic? Or are we going to have some deep investments in community supports, protections, prevention, and recovery? So both the pandemic policing projects report um, that was released, uh, when was that, November, um, called Unmask, the Impacts of Pandemic Policing, and Mark Lamont Hill's book, We Still Hear, Pandemic Policing, Protest, and Possibility, explore the intersections between policing of Black bodies, Black lives, and Black communities, and the health and economic devastation of Black communities wrought by the pandemic. Both highlight the ways that Black communities are at the greatest risk in the context of the pandemic and of police violence, and also most unable to comply with protective public health orders that, in fact, just create new powers and opportunities to reinforce existing policing patterns. Both works point to the sparks and the fuel for the 2020 uprising against what Mark describes as a central question of what it means to be Black in America, which is, what ways am I going to resist death today? And both documents um, or writings point ways forward that affirm and protect Black lives and communities. So that's the conversation we're going to be having tonight. Please um, follow along and tweet on social media using the hashtag COVID without cops. And um, with that, we'll just jump right in. I'm going to start by asking each of you to introduce yourself and also describe yourself for people who can't see you, starting with you, Mark. Peace, everybody. Free to land. My name is uh, Mark Lamont Hill. I am a brown-skinned African-American uh, cisgender male. I am wearing a black hoodie uh, that says black on it. Uh, and uh, no other, uh, I don't think anything else uh, clothing-wise. And I have a very low-cut uh, haircut. Um, I think that's, and I'm in a room, um, in a, uh, a room, I don't know what's in the Funny, I'm in a place I've never been before. I'm in a, I'm in a hotel in between uh, places and traveling. Uh, I'm in a I'm in a room with a background with a normal hotel background of a picture and a lamp and a cheap sofa. <laughs> and who are you? Ah, yes, there's that part. I am a professor um, of media studies and urban education uh, at Temple University. I am uh, an anthropologist uh, who's very much interested in these questions around state violence, around. Um, uh, and, and also thinking about uh, the possibilities of abolition. Uh, and um, I am the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books and the founder of the People's Education Center, which is um, our, our community education center. And uh, yeah, that, 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 that's me. Yeah, sometimes y'all might get to catch Mark on uh, network television also. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I host BET News. And uh, Al Jazeera up front, uh, and uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I used to do other stuff, but then they stopped me because I was saying too much stuff. <laughs> and we're gonna look forward to hearing all the stuff you have <laughs> to say. And they started saying the stuff, right? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, welcome. Um, part of the reason I'm asking folks to introduce themselves is because um, I could not do any of them justice. They're all brilliant and have so many um, accolades and uh, things I could say about them, and that would take all night. So that's why I'm letting people share the most important things about themselves. And I'm going to turn to you next, Erica. Tell us uh, who you are and what you look like. Hey, my name is Derek Purnell. I'm a human rights lawyer, writer, organizer. I currently hold a column at The Guardian. 
I am, I co-founded the COVID-19 Policing Project with Andrea, and right now I'm working on a bunch of very exciting um, projects that I'm waiting to see come to life. What do I look like? I am, I used to say 5'5 and brown eyes, but I'm 5'4. I am brown skin. I have a short afro. And my background um, is just, it's a, a white door, mostly. And I'm wearing a black sweater. Thank you. Hiram Rivera, tell us who you are and what you're up to and what you look like. Yeah, uh, to Land. Um, Hiram Rivera, I'm the director of the Resource Hub for Safety and Accountability here in the city of Philadelphia. Um, I don't know what else to say. I am a loyal follower of the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, and just involved in a, in, a, in a number of different things. I'm brown skin, short hair. Uh, I'm wearing a sweatshirt that says New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut, home of the world's best pizza. Um, oh. I'm even share with a beige wall behind me. And last, but certainly not least, uh, Pascal, uh, Tell us who you are, how you relate to this work, and um, how you would describe yourself. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a white transmasculine person who is sometimes mistaken for Tom York. I'm wearing <laughs> a navy blue shirt, the white background, and I'm living in occupied Tewa territories, otherwise known as northern New Mexico. I'm a researcher, writer, and visual artist. Um, currently, um, having the pleasure of working with Andrea, Derek, and Hiram with the COVID-19 Policing Project, um, as well as with the Defund uh, resource website that's coming up shortly. Thank you all so much for doing that. Um, Erica, we can't see you. We hope you'll come back soon. Um, but just folks to know that we could be having a million conversations with these folks tonight, including uh, about hip hop um, and uh, just so many more uh, black nationalism, so much more. But tonight we're going to be talking about pizza, these, these bizarre and counterfactual <laughs> things about New Haven pizza. <laughs> We could be having regional debates. We could be having all kinds of conversations tonight. Uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight is um, he took office last week. Biden declared a, a war on COVID. So, so he uh, issued a plan that has a whole um, set of things in it, including, as I mentioned earlier, federal, federal mask mandate that applies to planes and airports and buses um, and creates incentives for state and local officials to do the same. And at the beginning, we all saw images of a black man being pulled off by a bus in Philly for not wearing a mask. We saw images of a young black mother being dragged to the filthy New York City subway floor by five police officers who piled on top of her because they didn't like how she was wearing her mask and how she was talking to them about it um, in front of her five-year-old. And those are, in many ways, a huge part of what inspired us to form the, the COVID-19 policing project. So um, part of what we do is track enforcement of these kinds of orders. Um, so Pascal, tell us what mask mandate enforcement has looked like over the past nine months um, and how it's likely going to play out in this context. 
Thanks, Andrea. So what we've witnessed over the past nine months is that mask enforcement, like the enforcement of all COVID-related mandates, has been incredibly uneven. Uh, that across cities, states, territories, and tribal jurisdictions, the rules around wearing masks have been and continue to be very inconsistent. And yet, as you touched on earlier, the punishments for perceived noncompliance track predictable patterns of policing as usual. And as uh, Mark describes in his book, and as we document our report, we know that the co-occurring pandemics of COVID-19 and state violence are deeply interconnected and that Black, Indigenous, people of color, and migrant communities in particular who bear the brunt of the COVID outbreak are also subject to the most punitive enforcement of emergency public health orders. Um, and we certainly witnessed that this summer um, as we um, experienced thousands of maskless cops attack protesters at demonstrations for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and all Black lives, um, tearing off people's masks in order to pepper spray them. And many cops still refuse to wear masks, even as they continue to arrest, ticket, and harass people for alleged violations of mask mandates and other public health orders. Um, more, rec more recently, we witnessed anti-masker white supremacists storm the Capitol, continuing to openly and aggressively defy mask mandates with impunity. And under neoliberalism, there's been an emphasis placed on individual blame and responsibility for rising infection rates, which has had the effect of delegating the task of ensuring that people wear a mask inside reopening businesses to essential and service workers who are already at higher risk of COVID exposure, and now also to verbal abuse, violence, and retaliation by individuals who oppose mask requirements. And as you mentioned, Biden has declared a war on COVID um, under which he's issued two executive orders related to wearing masks. Um, the first requires masks on federal property. And the other one, as you mentioned, requires masks for travel on inner city buses, trains, planes, and other forms of public transportation. Um, you also mentioned the example of Kalima Brugier, and we know that we can anticipate that this second executive order in particular will impact Black, Brown, low-income, LGBTQ, disabled, and migrant communities who most rely on public transportation and who already experience intense surveillance, um, policing, and harassment at airports, train stations, and bus stops. Um, it's important to note that neither of Biden's new executive orders on mask wearing offer specific detail on how exactly these orders will be enforced. But when he mentions incentivizing state and local officials to implement or double down on masking laws, we know that incentives is code for pouring more and more money into law enforcement agencies for continued pandemic policing. Thanks so much, um, Pascal. And we're we're seeing that um, uh, in even over the past weekend. You know, uh, we have other members of our team. Tiffany Wang is uh, um, does our comms, and she's been tracking what's happening uh, even over the weekend. That oh, in Omaha, police were conducting mask checks and issuing citations. In Columbia, South Carolina, they issued a hundred mask tickets over the weekend, um, and 124 people got $300 tickets in the middle of this economic crisis in West Hollywood, which is actually a place where a lot 
of low-income uh, trans people are out in public and working, homeless LGBTQ young people. Um, you know, it's a queer neighborhood that is frequented by people of all income sources and the ones who are most likely to be targeted by police always there are black and brown queer folks. And so um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's who got that ticket. And then Tampa just said that they were going to fine people $500 for not wearing masks um, instead of deciding that they're not going to hold a super spreader event, right? So this is like how things are playing out now is we're going to find people who have no money instead of making decisions to that will keep all of us more safe. Um, which brings me to the question um, for you, Mark, which is, you know, Biden's really saying he's going to do everything in his power to avoid another national shutdown because they're worried about shutting down the economy. Um, but most um, so all of this is, uh, enforcement is happening through things, um, that you describe people being able to do only as an index of privilege, right? So for instance, you can only stay at home as an index of privilege. You can only work from home as an index of, is part of an index of privilege. Can you just say more about how you think about that topic in, in your book? Oh, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry, old man problems. Um, <laughs> this thing on, um, I uh, I was I was looking down for a moment because I I, I just saw the news that uh, Cicely Tyson has passed away. So I wanted oh, to, no. to 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 send a, a rest in peace and uh, as she Ooh. returned to the ancestors. That's a a stunning and devastating loss for 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 one of our one of our heroes now, one of our ancestors. And so, at the age of ninety six, she's uh, she's left us today. So just didn't want to uh, let that moment pass entirely without acknowledging that. And I know many people who are watching this are, pro- are probably getting that news at the same time. So I wanted to just take Thank you. to acknowledge that. Um, part of, there, there, there are some very interesting moves that happen in the midst of, of, of American crises. Um, we simultaneously universalize things that should be particular and then we individualize things that have broader systemic and structural uh, components. In other words, the stuff that we, the stuff that should just be on, on, the stuff that's just on us, they try to make like everybody dealing with the same stuff and the stuff that should be on all of us, they say, ah, it's up to you to fix that. And so the first move that happens as we enter um, what was recognized as a, as, a, as a pandemic was the universalizing move, the idea that we're all in this together, that uh, COVID doesn't have a name or a face or a race or, or gender or geography, um, except it does. <laughs> it, it's Except it does. Um, we're all at some level equally vulnerable to it in the abstract, but we can never ignore the particular ways that the most vulnerable people in the world and even specifically in our country are rendered more vulnerable um, by COVID and are made more susceptible to COVID because of their vulnerability. Uh, we have to always be honest about that and keep track of that. And that's why, you know, even in the, my book, when I talk about pre-existing conditions, I'm saying, well, yeah, there's the the health pre-existing conditions that they, they talk about, um, i.e. you're all in this together. Some of y'all just made better choices, you know, and that's why you have heart condition. That's why you have diabetes. That's why your BMI is higher, et cetera. Um, and I'm saying, well, no, there are some pre-existing social and structural conditions that we have to wrestle with. White supremacy, capitalism, racial capitalism specifically is where we should be at when we have this conversation. We have to be talking about the, 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 exist, the existence of a punishment state. We have to be talking about what it means to live in a world that, has, that doesn't have universal health care or health, ins- 
or even health insurance for that matter. But to the extent that we have a universalized coverage, it's 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 linked to 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 profit making corporations and it's insurance, not care. And so all of this is part of the equation. That means that if you are black, you are more likely in this country to be poor and vulnerable. And if you're poor and vulnerable, you're more likely to experience premature death, to use the language of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So there's that. And then there's the way that we individualize it precisely so that we don't have to be accountable to those systems or, 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 or to be accountable for changing those systems. And so we reduce our COVID response to the individual level. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay six feet apart. And if you do that, you should be just fine. Now, there is some truth to the fact that if I can stay six feet from folk or if I can stay more than six feet from folk, I might be better off than if I don't. If, if I wash my hands all the time, sure, I'll be better than if I don't. If I wear a mask, I will be better than if I don't, although there's some complicated science around that. Certainly wearing a mask is better than not wearing a mask. And all these are things that I encourage everyone to do. I want to be clear about that. However, we act as if this is purely up to the individual's choice. Social distance, and this is, and I'm glad you, you, you raised this point, Andrew. It, 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 social distance is an index of privilege. Our ability to, to stand distance from, from our fellow citizens, from our neighbors, even from our family members, is a measure of how much money we have, how much access we have, how many resources we have. We could not have this conversation right now in the midst of a pandemic safely if not for Zoom. If not for having access to the Internet, if not for and not not just Internet, but not just on our phone, because a whole bunch of vulnerable folk have Internet access. But it's primarily through their phone, which is which also limits the ways that we can do things like school. Right. But I don't want to go too far off topic. We there's a so, so we can do this from Zoom. We can work from home. You can't work from home if you work in the cash register at Walmart. If you work in a cash register at Walmart, you're working from work so that the privilege can work from home. And I'm now a frontline worker, an essential worker, as it were, um, in, in the sense that I'm on the front line. I have to be there to and I'm rendered vulnerable to all, all everyone else's sickness, everyone else's illness, everyone else's uh, you know vulnerability. And then they go home and shelter and I'm still here for the rest of my eight hour shift. Mm-hmm. And so and I'm doing that without workers rights, without safe, safe working conditions, without living wages. And so. And, and every study has shown that the more likely you are to have low income, the le- that, 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 that you're just, there's a direct correlation between how much money you make and your willingness or, to seek medical care. Not because you poor people don't care about it, because they can't afford it. They can't access it. So even to get the COVID test or to check is, is, is the index of my privilege. But my ability to stay at home, my ability to stay six feet from folk. What, what happens when you live in Richard Allen Projects? Mm-hmm. What you, and there's three of y'all in there with that one bedroom, that two bedroom. Six feet where? Right. So, so when we make these memes mocking poor people, they're supposed to be in the house, but these Negroes on the basketball court, they standing on the corner. The, the, the corner might actually be much safer for me than staying in a house with three people where I can't stand six feet from you. And grandma and mom got to work again at the Walmart. <laughs> so when she comes home from the Walmart or working for Amazon, all of which are exploiting their labor and they come back. Now we all vulnerable. So me standing outside actually might make more sense. Stop, let's stop pathologizing poor folk and vulnerable folk and assuming that they don't know what's best for them. Right. So the, the, the distance that we're able to establish is a marker of what we have access to. And so when we then punish people or hold them accountable for not doing those things, we're acting as if we're on a level playing field and people are simply making bad choices. When Bruce Willis walks into a store in Beverly Hills, as he did two weeks ago, with the bandana around his neck and they tell him to put it up and he says no and walks out the store rather than wear a mask. That's some that's some privilege shit. 
Mm-hmm. But when folk don't have the ability to 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 stand six feet apart or to do the things that are necessary, when people can even access PPE, people can access uh, 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 hand sanitizer for three or four months because folk and folk were selling on the internet at, at, at astronomical prices. Folk couldn't make these choices, so it, I become very scared when I hear the Biden administration talk about enforcement. Because we live in a country where and and really a world where the logic of enforcement is is directly tied to the logic of criminalization. Uh Our our idea of justice is linked to confinement, it's linked to punishment. And so we can't think outside of that. So when the police come and pull up on young black men for not wearing a mask, one, it is it's often a pretext just for further criminalization. We can talk about that. But it's also unfairly uh, it's an unfair kind of intervention into their day-to-day lives because a lot of folk can't access that stuff. They don't have what it takes to do that and to, to, to protect in the way that we say we want to. So I'm very scared when they use this language of, of protection. I'm going to protect the community from these folk, particularly since Biden is the same person who's trying to protect us from these same young black folk in 94. So I have no good faith belief that the outcome is going to be anything different. Because the only tool we have is a hammer, so everything looks like a nail. So whether it's epidemiological problems, whether it's medical, social, psychological, we still it's lock them up, punish them, and we got to think about something different, especially since privilege is what's operating here and not simply indifference. Absolutely, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm seeing some preach in our little internal chat. Uh, we're all uh, definitely saying that, and. I- yeah, I, people aren't paying attention to what's happening in multi-generational households. And then also what Pascal was saying earlier is it's just counterintuitive, right? There's like young men hanging out outside on my block because yes, it's multi-generational families living in one place, right. all in one room, and people are just trying to be outside. And then the roll up from the cops is you're not wearing a mask, by a cop not wearing a mask, who now, and, and you're not social distancing, and but he's now not wearing a mask. And there's six feet of back and forth and maybe some heated conversation and passing ID. And now it's about distributing death, more death to black people in addition to more criminalization right through that process. So um, the other thing is that it um, we discovered when we were looking at the orders um, is that it's also an index of vulnerability, right? That sometimes you're stepping outside your house because your house is not safe. You're stepping outside your house because um, your your vulnerability or your index of privilege is about like, I'm a survivor. I am um, a queer youth who's now forced back home. Um, there's I'm Or I don't have a home to be in, right? Um, I'm unhoused. So um, some of these orders um, had vague mentions of it, but I, Pascal, tell us how that's evolved over time um, and also whether the Biden plan has any plan for those folks. Yeah, as you mentioned, Andrea, um, some cities and states have made exceptions specifically to stay-at-home orders and mask mandates for specific vulnerable populations, including essential workers, unhoused folks, uh, survivors of violence, disabled people, and children under a certain age um, with wildly varying degrees of specificity and respect by law enforcement. Um, And what we've tracked uh, through our research is that in spite of clear exceptions to stay-at-home orders, for example, there have been multiple instances of violent enforcement of curfews against essential workers um, who are just traveling to and from their jobs. Uh, We also saw early reports that indicated um, that domestic violence increased in the context of stay-at-home orders. And in response, some cities and states made exceptions for survivors of domestic violence, providing at least in theory, that they could leave their home to seek safety. Um, 
and several limited this exception to people going to domestic violence shelters, which as congregate group facilities represent different safety threats in the context of this pandemic. Um, so what that did was leave survivors who uh, may have temporarily left their homes, um, now placing them at risk for heightened police harassment um, and arrest. Uh, similarly, some cities and states provided exceptions um, for unhoused people who did not have a place in which to shelter safely. Um, and while a few of those orders claimed to provide assistance, um, very, very few of them offered safe and sustainable options um, for folks to shelter, uh, whether that was to avoid infection or quarantine. Um, however, and this is really important, none of them outlined exactly how unhoused communities would be spared enforcement of stay-at-home orders. And what we've seen over the past nine months is that in many places, this has left um, unhoused folks to be targeted by police for violations of these stay-at-home orders as well as travel restrictions. Uh, we also found that only about 15% um, of these exceptions uh, to mask mandates um, uh, existed for disabled people or people with certain medical conditions, including asthma or other respiratory illness. Um, and this is based on access needs or potential health risks. Um, however, again, none of the orders clarified how these exemptions would actually, in practice, prevent police from targeting disabled people for enforcement of mask mandates. And we know that disabled people are highly targeted for police violence as is um, before the pandemic began. Um, so just a quick update, uh, and this is not surprising at all, but um, many of the local and state public health orders have actually not shifted and certainly not shifted enough to uh, really address the safety and housing needs of um, survivors of violence, unhoused, disabled, and LGBT people. Um, as well, the Biden administration's national strategy on COVID-19 does not lay out any specific measures for meeting these needs either. So in terms of charting a path forward, we really need all public health orders uh, to provide clear guidance on exceptions. And survivors of domestic violence and unhoused folks um, should be allowed to seek temporary or long-term safety as they see fit without police harassment or questioning. And exceptions should not be conditioned on going to group shelters. Also, individuals must be offered safe, accessible, long-term single-person single shelter. Um, disabled people and people with contraindicated health conditions should not be harassed or punished for not wearing a mask where doing so would create inaccessibility or risk. And in, just in terms of um, a long-term just recovery from the pandemic, the Biden administration must commit to providing unhoused residents, survivors of violence, and recently released individuals with safe, sanitary, and permanent community-based housing. Thank you so much, Pascal. Um, this brings me back to this point that Mark raised. And Derek, I'm coming to you because I, I know that you have like, uh, just from experience working with you, like so many threads that you're going to tie together with all of this that I'm just, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat and waiting for that. So that's, that's the, the, the juice of the meal that's coming. And I want to hear from you, Mark, um, you know, what you were describing earlier also is like individual responsibility thing. Like these responses 
um, to the, I mean, the, the pandemics, all of them unfolded against this backdrop of white supremacy and structural racism that you're talking about, and also neoliberalism, right? And that as soon as, um, and Derica pointed this out in one of our uh, weekly meetings, she's like, as soon as they figured out it was black people dying, they were like, oh, it's on you, it's individual. Now it's all individualism. And it was back to neoliberalism um, in terms of this focus that you're talking about in terms of individual actions and responsibility and refusing to provide the kinds of support, collective support that Pascal was just talking about. And you talk about this in your book um, as part of what you call Corona capitalism. So can you tell us what a war on COVID that Biden just declares look like, looks like in the context of Corona capitalism? Yeah. Um, and I'm going to read just a, a quick sentence just because I want to make sure I say this precisely because my brain don't work like it used to. <laughs> It's a problem. All of us are facing. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I can get book talks off the dome, you know what I'm saying? Now I'm like, what page did I say that on? Um, (laughs) Corona capitalism refers to the economic conditions and institutional arrangements that made uh, the vulnerable more likely to experience premature death during the COVID-19 pandemic. Corona capitalism also speaks to the ways that human crises are exploited by the powerful who coordinate with governments to create policies that enable them to profit during such moments. Um, I can't help the back of my mind is also thinking about um, the vaccine, right? Because I wrote this book before the vaccines come out. Moderna and Pfizer, I'm looking at all the money that's being made across the globe on development, developing new um, 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 vaccines, the way it's being used in countries as a form of soft political power. I'm looking at the way that the global South is being exploited. 40 million doses, just as a side note, I saw this today, 40 million doses have been given to the richest nations in the world. 40 million doses of the vaccine. Do you know how many have made it and have been administered on the continent of Africa? Zero. 55. Mm. 55. Not 55 million, not 55,000, not 5,500, 55. And should we guess that those are to white aid work, aid workers? Probably. They, they say that they've been distributed in Guinea. We're not sure. But the fact that on the entire continent, 55. But, th- th- but this is what happens. Right. Because this is not about solving the problem. Right. And I want to be clear when I say Corona capitalism, I'm not suggesting a new mode of production. Some academics like to make up new terms. and new fr- That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help us understand how centuries of racial capitalism and decades of neoliberal economic policy not only create the conditions for the COVID-19 pandemic, but also informed our legal, economic, medical, ecological, cultural and social responses to it. This is this is this is extremely important. I'm just give a couple quick things, examples, right? One is the hospitals, right? Um, look at a city like 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 New York, right? The hardest hit city in the world at one point. The New York hospital has public and private facilities. The public facilities, which serve the bulk of, of poor and working class folk, are, are underfunded. They operate at a deficit as deep as 2.9 billion dollars a year. The five largest private networks. Uh, which serve upper middle class wealthy folk operate at a profit, right? This shapes what kind of services you get, right? Given the shortage of, uh, given how our healthcare system works, people use those public um, hospitals, not just for um, emergencies, we use them for primary care doctors, we use them for shelters, we use them for every drug detox, we use it for all kinds of stuff. And now with, so now if you're socially vulnerable, and vulnerable to, 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 to addiction, if you're vulnerable to homeless, to being unhoused, if you're vulnerable to mental illness, you're also now vulnerable to COVID, right? And to the extent that they keep you away from COVID by not letting you in the hospital, 
you're now unhoused again. You're now unsafe. You're now unsafe in all these other ways, including making yourself more vulnerable to police interactions, which tend to result in death, specifically for people who are unhoused, dealing with mental illness, dealing with disability, trans. I mean, all the populations that are all, and particularly black trans women. So all of these populations that are vulnerable become more vulnerable through COVID, but they also become more vulnerable to COVID, right? But you had at the beginning of the pandemic, and I'll be real fast with this. I mean, you had hospitals where doctors were literally making their own PPE. They were making stuff to protect themselves because we didn't have it. The wealthy hospitals, on the other hand, were, were they took some hits too, right? Which is its own issue, right? They couldn't do surgeries. They couldn't do cancer treatments. They couldn't do stuff that made money, but they also couldn't do stuff that people needed. And so again, because of profit making, we're making decisions about the kind of medical care people have because money is the bottom line. Right. But the private hospitals not only could survive those lean months, some of them used the opportunity to collect more wealth, to expand, to, to, to buy to buy real estate, to deepen their budgets. I mean, this is what was happening. Right. But it's not just the hospitals. Right. Think about small businesses. We, we came up with the, the CARES Act. We said we're going to give a trillion dollars to the vulnerable. Half of that went to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. The other half went to, went to the cops, went to cops, went to it went to all the people we don't want to have it. Right. And then when, even when it went to small business, you know what kind of small business got this Shake Shack? Mm-hmm. Shake Shack got six thousand employees. Shake Shack got six thousand employees. And yet somehow they got a small the same small business loan my bookstore got get, gets. Right. Um, Trump supporters got it. Publicly traded companies got it. The wealthy got wealthier. Jeff Bezos worth $200 billion. His wealth grew exponentially just in the first three months. Billionaire wealth grew exponentially. Even those that lost money gained it all back within 10 months, while tens of millions of people went from being, uh, not being technically in, you know, impoverished to being uh, at, the, at the poverty, below the poverty line. And so we saw the gap grow, right? And the problem is, we don't have the, the political will or the infrastructure to deal with it, right? Because as Naomi Klein talked about in Shock Doctrine, when we're at moments of crisis, right? Or as Rahm Emanuel said, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, at a moment of crisis, that's when they seize it. That's when you're scared, you're vulnerable, you don't know what to do. And they and, and that's when after 9-11, you, you see our civil liberties get, get, get thrown away. After war, you see black water develop. After Katrina, you see housing exploitation. After a, 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 a natural disaster in Sri Lanka or, or Haiti or, 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 right, or right here in New Orleans, you see policy develop. And we saw the same thing after Corona. And so this logic, of, of preying on human disaster. And then the only people who get punished for, again, last thing, you watch the news, I, I pay attention to the memes, because the memes are sometimes a window into how we are sort of being trained. They serve as a site of kind of pedagogical possibility for how we're supposed to understand how the world works. So, so in the same way we clown in black people for standing on basketball courts and hanging on the corner during the pandemic, we're also taught to get mad at the guy who is buying uh, hand sanitizer and gloves for five dollars and selling them for five hundred dollars. Yeah, that's trifling. That's messed up, and it's part of a capitalist logic that teaches us to te- treat people like means rather than ends. I hear that, but the fact that Amazon is leading the charge, getting the FBI to worry about that one dude in his house and not looking at the vulture capitalism that's happening from Amazon, from Walmart, from sh- from from all of these big box retailers, from Tyson Foods, which has people on on the assembly line making money making chicken, cutting chicken and not getting PPE, then they then they die from COVID or get sick from COVID, come back to work and can't get a day off. That's where our attention has to be. But Corona capitalism teaches us to focus on the vulnerable and not the people who put the vulnerable in that situation. 
Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, focus on the individual too and be like, you, did you do this? Did you do that? And, and are you deserving or not, not deserving of assistance or help in this moment? Um, I saw you, Derek, uh, um, making hand gestures and, uh, leading us on the new, on, on the way from there. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to tie together all the writing and thinking that you do around policing and all of the writing and thinking you do around capitalism <laughs> and, um, how those things came together in the research and the report. I mean, you know, our findings were no one was shocked by our findings, right? Black people five times more likely to be arrested, black women, particularly, um, more like experiencing the greatest rates of disparity, even as black women are saving our lives. They're also the ones who are getting um, the most uh, racially discriminatory enforcement of mass mandates. How do you see kind of what came out of the report? Um, how does that tie into the bigger issues that you write about and think about um, around policing and, and economic uh, and political structures? Wow, I am. Um, yes, you saw the hand gestures because I am an unfortunate child of the black church. So I'm always waving and being like, yes, that preach. Yes, exactly. I'm like, I was like, yeah, shock doctrine. I'm saying all these things at the same time. But um, earlier today, I was actually listening to this Gil Scott Heron playlist. And this this one came on, this song came on. I uh, love this poem, I guess. And it's We Beg Your Pardon. And um, I I love it. I only heard it one at a time, but today it had a particular resonance. And now thinking about what Mark just said around us paying attention to the vulnerable and using um, criminalizing, directing our attention to the vulnerable, obscures the violence of the people who are in power. So here, Gil, he says, you know, they call it due process, and some people are overdue. We beg your pardon, America. Mm. Somebody said. Brother man gonna break a window, gonna steal a hubcap, gonna smoke a joint. A brother man gonna go to jail. The man who tried to steal America is not in jail. Uh-huh. It's, it's right. It's, it's exactly that. It's, it's, it's exactly that. And the second thing to Mark's point about redistribution, um, I was so shocked to see that Meharry Medical College, which is at HBCU in Nashville, they have been the primary site of the um, COVID testing, they've been the primary partner of the state of Tennessee. And when it came time for the vaccinations to get distributed, they did not go to Meharry, who's been serving the disproportionately black and poor communities in that city. It went to Vanderbilt. It went to Uh Vanderbilt City. And then here you have the president of the college saying, you know, I don't know how Meharry didn't make the list yeah, I, I'm just not sure how it happened. And what's sad is that I'm sure this person is in a you know tenuous position because they still don't have the well, they at the time he said that they still didn't have the vaccines, right? So now you gotta negotiate to get, you know, vaccines for your workers while Vanderbilt is literally already on the ground with their nurses talking about we got the vaccines. And so it's exactly that. So they serve in two different populations. Um, so in this particular report, I think, Andrea, you wanted me to focus on some of the broken windows aspects of policing. And so broken windows policing is a theory that if you let one piece of a neighborhood deteriorate, deteriorate, if you let a broken window stay there, it's going to invite all sorts of crime and community behaviors that are just ill. So we have to make sure that we discipline the people and nip all of those social ills in the butt before it leads to some major outbreak of crime that's going to be terrible for the city. And even though this theory is ill-founded and quite frustrating, I also think it's just not that smart. You know, because 
when my house has a broken window, it may be cheaper to fix the window than to spend like millions and millions and millions of dollars on police to then go and respond to potential behaviors that may, you know, rise out of one broken window. It's like, well, let's invest in that. And so what's happened with the pandemic has just been a continuation of lots of the broken windows policing we've seen or the theory that we've seen in response. And so police departments across the country were adopting broken windows policing as a way to legitimize their enforcement around um, around people who are living in black neighborhoods, people who are living in Latinx, communities of color, immigrants. And what's so fascinating about this particular theory, and I just learned this, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago, is that when, um, when maroon communities were developing, right, in the, in the 16, 1700s, you know, slave patrols that were initially forming would go and chase them, try to bring them back, would form these bands. And then the, the, the colonial government would sometimes exacerbate the kinds of raids that maroon communities would, ish, would you know, go um, raid on the plantation and they would exacerbate them so they would get more funding from Spain, from England, from Portugal to get more policing resources. This is in the 1600s. This is in the 1600s, right? And so it's so interesting thinking about the continuity of some of these issues of um, of repression because you know we're repressed because we were first free. And so the pandemic policing report on mass it traces how a lot of the broken windows policing has manifested again with the pandemic because with criminals criminalization, you have another reason, another opportunity to um, to police, to arrest people, to put them in jail. And so, Andrea, you already shared a couple of the statistics from the report. We know that the policing has led to widespread harassment, citation, and physical violence against Black and brown people in the context of enforcing actual or perceived non-compliance with the public order. I think it's also very important to say that disproportionality is one metric that we obviously can measure police violence, but it's not the sole metric, right? Because we don't want Black people just being police as well as white people, right? We're working towards the eradication of police in the first place. So it's always, always, always important for me to say that. But, 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 you know, our analysis found through all these media reports, cases that were illuminating these parallels and synergies from public health orders enforcement and then the broken windows. And so we looked at New York City, we looked at Chicago, and I thought Chicago um, stood out as a particular example for a couple of reasons, right? So... <laughs> I'll just read this right here. In Chicago, police officers stationed on street corners in a majority Black and Latinx neighborhoods required people to show ID before being allowed to enter their own residential blocks, restricting their access and movement. While this was justified as a measure to promote social distancing, it was actually an extension of a policing program called criminal loitering in the area. So let's think about this. So Chicago is having cops interact with people who are trying to make it back to their own blocks. While at the same time, the cycle of arrests, jailings, and releases for the Cook County Jail was one of the primary factors of the spread of the coronavirus in Chicago. So per the work of these sociologists, they track, they track, they look to see how many neighborhoods, how many predominantly black neighborhoods 
the was the um was the virus spreading at a particular rate because the police were re- were arresting people, putting them in jail, and then letting them back out into the streets. So on the one end, y'all are policing the pandemic by being on street corners and making sure that people don't live on a particular block. But at the same time, through your enforcement, through putting people in jail, ninety four percent of people there for nonviolent offenses. We can get into why that's problematic, but nonviolent offenses, and then ultimately. 60% of the new cases that came from those Cook County um, jailings were in majority black zip codes. So not only, right, not only are y'all policing the pandemic, y'all are actively killing people. You're accelerating the process, right? You're ex- literally accelerating the process. You know, in, in California, just a couple of days ago, the governor, he lifted the the stay-at-home orders, the stay-at-home restrictions. So on the one end, it's like, oh, wow, California is making some gains. The new, the new number of cases have declined. But the deaths have remained nearly constant, right? The deaths have remained nearly constant. And there are two more variants that have been introduced in the state. Well, not even introduced because they're homegrown. And so on the one end, you're telling people it's all on you. Wear a mask, six feet. We'll raid your house. There's a new task force in LA specifically tasked with raiding people's houses to break up gatherings, right? And at the same time, the government is saying, well, we don't want people to, you know, lose their businesses, which is absolutely important. And so now you're putting people in a position to choose whether they're going to be outside and be able to go to businesses and be able to have, you know, outdoor seating. At the same time, the, the deaths are still on the rise. And so it's so, so, so important that we know that these conditions, the underlying conditions cannot be policed away and not to get on Joe Biden by any opportunity to get on Joe Biden. I, I always try to get on. Yes. I'm the person who's saying we need a, a national mass mandate has still refused to concede to universal health care. Not only that has vehemently promised to veto it if it's passed by democratically a so-called democratically elected Congress. And so it's, you can't police away underlying conditions. We know what's the long term game. Are we going to use police each time one of these things break out? Right. And so there's just so much more to say. I'm really, really enjoying um, learning from you, Pascal and Mark, and I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> yeah, we're going to come back to you any second now, Derricka, because there is from you. I know. Right. Like I just uh, there's so much more so much in that. And I just want to also lift up the Chicago teachers who are fighting. Um, to have safe schooling where literally they're, they're holding school outside in like 20 degree weather because it's not safe inside the school. Um, and, and it's all part of this mix, um, that you're talking about too, uh, Derica, about, you know, you can, we're going to force you back to school and we're going to punish you for having grandma over, you know? <laughs> and so, um, so much there. We're going to come back um, to where you think we need to go um, moving forward. Um, that's different than what you're talking about. Um, that isn't, somebody who passed the 94 crime bill declaring a war, which makes me very nervous. Right. Um, so we're going to come back to you in a second. Crime bill, to you. Crime bill, you know, is- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to come back to you. I just want to go to Hiram quickly. You know, you, you are the executive director of the community resource hub. You made a decision to host this project um, graciously, right? Derek and I came to you and we're like, we need a place to do this tracking and to and to and to sort of get the information about what we know already know is happening. Um, and then you're like, well, we work on 
you know, being a, a hub for people working on policing issues and you graciously agreed to host us. Say, can you say more about why that is and how this lines up with the other work that the hub is doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you to, to all of you. I've, I've learned a lot. I'm just sitting here. Uh, I've had to take a pause. There's a lot of information, a lot of brilliance um, that has been dropped on us. So really appreciate that. Um, you know, I was given the honor of taking this idea of the Community Resource Hub Right. And bring it to life. And the Community Resource Hub is, for those who don't know, it's a national organization based out of here in Philadelphia, um, exclusively working on the issue of policing. And the way we do that is we provide research, technical assistance and capacity building support to organizations on the front lines who are working on the issues of uh, transforming policing, holding policing accountable, everything um, and anything in between. And so. You know, for us, it, is, it has been really, really important how we move our work is to move with the community, right? There are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of institutions that want to impose their ideas, impose their work on the communities that they say that they're serving, right? Um, for the purposes of extracting more money from big philanthropy, right? But for us, what we want to do is be in service with the community, right? working side by side with the community. And so when the pandemic hit and all the stuff happened and we all kind of you know, were thrown uh, into a whirlwind. You know, YouTube came and and with this idea is like, hey, something needs to be done, and that's what's been right up our alley, right? We at the hub have always wanted to create a space where new learning, new research, new opportunities can happen, right? Where folks who don't have the means to kind of sit and 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 uh, pay their rent, but also explore different avenues of how this greater web of policing intersects with all the different levels of uh, state government and, and and our lives and Walmart and all those pieces, um, but we. We can do that and we can provide that right and so as our communities and the local organizations continue to 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 confront directly the uh, instances right of individual police violence police killing individuals in these various cities and, and the uprisings that happen we wanted to create this space where this other learning can happen at the same time. We know, right, that and this is the role of the state, right, the role of the state is is primarily to to serve as a tool of one class to dominate the other, right? The ruling class to oppress the, the poor, and they use the police to to exasperate those class antagonisms, right, and those class contradictions. That is the role of the police within the state. Right. And so, as Mark pointed out with the corona capitalism, right, always using a crisis to their benefit. And so when you two, you and Derica came were like, listen, we really need to jump on this. It was like a gift that fell in our lap. And of course, right, this was the role that we wanted to play and create the space and the opportunity for you, Tiffany, Pascal, Derica, to really dive in and do the work that the folks on the front line just don't have the time to do because they're too busy getting gas. They're too busy trying to to you know meet with families of, of, of victims. They're too busy just out there fighting the good fight, right? Um, and I think I am really proud of the work that has come out of the hub since then, right? And so not only do we focus on this COVID-19 policing project, right? The hub is, is working on issues of police surveillance, right? We're working on the issues of looking at union contracts and the ever-growing power the police unions have to kill every and all campaign victories that happen 
right, at, at, at the policy level because of just the amount of power that they have. Um, we continue to work with organizations who are looking at their budgets, right, and figuring out how do we disinvest from policing, right, and put money into those things that really are going to make our community safe, like access to, to affordable housing, education, healthcare, right, like Derek had, so eloquently said, how about we just fix the window, right, instead of creating these mini militaries to just roll around our streets with tanks and, and helicopters. Um, and that is what we're doing at the hub, right? And so being, I think, right now, the only organization exclusively focused on the issue of policing nationally, and not just nationally, right? Humble brag. We also work with folks in Canada, and we also work with folks in Puerto Rico, um, because we know that policing, right, this policing thing is all in, interconnected, right? It's not just the U.S. issue, right? They're all being trained in Israel. They're all working and collaborating with each other and using all these different techniques. And so for us to have this space where we can also look internationally, we can also look at all these pieces and then bring it back to the folks as an offering. Right. As an offering to help the campaigns that are being fought uh, by folks on the front line. You know, that's 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 our goal. And that's our mission. That's what we need to do. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Derica and Mark to tell us what the way forward is in a second. Um, but. Uh, before I do, I want to pull in one more thread, which is why we invited, uh, one of the many reasons we invited Pascal into this project is that I know you from your work on HIV criminalization. So I wanted to just give you a minute or two to say, you know, where do you see the parallels here? And, um, you know, what does that say about the way forward? Except I think you froze. Yeah, thank you, Andrea. Oh. <laughs> My back. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Um so there are many parallels between HIV and COVID criminalization, but one specific thing I want to focus on is the way in which uh, HIV criminalization has really opened the door to policing and punishing people so severely during the COVID pandemic, and that is through the use of terrorism laws. Uh, so historically, it was under HIV criminal law that a biological agent, and specifically a virus, um, came to be understood as a weapon and alleged viral exposure to others could be prosecuted as a terroristic threat, even without a viable mode of transmission, right? And so one of the earliest uh, examples of this was the case of Gregory Smith, who was an AIDS activist with ACTA Philadelphia, um, doing amazing um, early HIV AIDS prisoner advocacy work. Uh, he was an incarcerated gay black man living with HIV, who was convicted on charges of terrorist threats after being accused of biting and spitting at guards in Camden County Jail in 1989. And for this, a judge sentenced him to 25 years, which was effectively a life sentence. And so building on this historical context of HIV criminalization, um, it's important to understand that just the flexibility to apply counterterrorism laws to the COVID pandemic is also a vestige of post 9-11 US militarism and the Bush administration's war on terror. And so early in the pandemic, the federal government um, came out and attempted to frame the act, whether real or perceived, of exposing others to COVID-19 as a terrorist threat. 
And in a memo to U.S. attorneys and federal law enforcement agencies, then uh, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen wrote, because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a biological agent, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. And he mentions the use of weapons of mass destruction code. So just to kind of wrap up by saying following this announcement, we found many documented incidents of law enforcement charging people with making terroristic threats after spitting, coughing, or throwing bodily fluid on or in the direction of police officers or other civilians, whether they had actually tested positive for COVID-19 or just claimed to have the virus. And now looking at Biden's national strategy for COVID response, he plans to bring back the Obama administration's National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense. And what's especially concerning about that is that uh, it's creating a conflation, right, between strategies to address current and future global health crises with U.S. military interests and policies held over from the war on terror related to bioterrorism. So I think that raises a whole host of issues and potential implications for a truly internationalist response as the pandemic continues to surge around the world, irrespective of borders. Whoa. Okay. So everyone's minds have been blown. Um, I hope out there y'all are tweeting on hashtag COVID without cops because your minds are about to be blown again, because here's the thing. We're at this crossroads, right? New records of infection, unprecedented economic crisis, all the things we've been talking about. Um, and there's this new administration that's saying it's doing a new approach to the pandemic, but it sounds like an old approach uh, of every war they've waged on individual black and brown, low income uh, and and disabled and trans and queer folks over the past centuries. So, um, and meanwhile, police don't stop. They just keep killing people, keep killing black people. Did it right after in January in Minneapolis, back where they killed George Floyd. They're just back at it. It's ongoing. Um, and now they're getting additional weapons to charge people, to lock them up, to police them in the ways that Derricka was talking about. So, and then the alternative that we just lived through was like, it's just a free for all. We're not doing anything about coronavirus. We're going to pretend it's not happening. It's a hoax, right? There's got to be this another way forward, right? What's the third way? Um, Derica, kick us off and then I'm Mark join in. Cause I know you have to, um, bounce to get back, but just, I really want to hear from both of you, given this analysis this big picture analysis y'all dropped on us, where you think the third way or other ways forward are starting with you, Derica. Wow. Yeah. No pressure at all. So first thing I'll say is that I absolutely want to amplify the sections of the report on mass because we have so many, grassroots driven sets of demands that I could like 20 to 30 that I could just read in terms of a particular next steps that people have thought about that people have experimented with that people have used for um, mutual aid and community-based care and it literally ranges from giving people money not just two thousand dollars one more time paying people two thousand dollars a month to stay home equity and accessing care universal pay sick leave and family leave to all workers access to abortions as a reproductive justice component provide access to trans health care counseling therapy rapid deployment of free mobile wi-fi i mean it is a comprehensive list of what we can be doing in terms of tangible concrete next steps 
to alleviate some of the suffering, some of the burden. So please, please, please look at the report at the end. We'll read the entire report because it took a lot to put together, but particularly at the end, there are some of those specific resources. In terms of big picture, I'm thinking of two people right now. One is Arundhati Roy and her essay that the pandemic is a portal. So although capital, capitalists, neoliberals, they've been able to exploit crises and make money out of them, it's also an opportunity for people on the left, people with radical politics, people who are committed to what Robin Kelly calls love, studying and struggling to really forge new ways of being in relationship with each other. I know I shared this story briefly that this is the longest time I've been able to spend with my siblings. And I know that because I have relationship, I'm a part of the petite bourgeoisie because I have a law degree. And so I, I'm able to have a home and we're able to have certain comforts. And I think about the little birthday parties we've been throwing. I'm just like, wow, there's so many beautiful things that's happening. How we check on our neighbors, how, hey, you know, Miss Carla, I'm going to the grocery store. Do you need anything back? Because you can't go. So there's been so many beautiful ways of us thinking about how to relate to each other. You know, there's been fewer car accidents. People have been dying fewer because there's been fewer people on the road, right? So what does that say about Pete Buttigieg taking over as uh, Secretary of Transportation? Maybe we don't need new highway infrastructure. Maybe we need clean, healthy transit in a way that can be built with an intention of a pandemic in mind. So there's so many like individual interpersonal ways that we can build and learn from this pandemic and then broader societal ones to reimagine and start over so we don't default to the same systems that we had before. The second person I'm thinking about, oh, I guess the two people are Fred Moda and Stefano Harney um, from the Undercommons. And there, you know, they really ask us what kind of society could have prisons? Because that's what we're trying to abolish. We're trying to abolish a society that could have slavery, that could have prisons, that could have the wage. And so with that framework, it helps me think so broadly, like what kind of society do we have? that either permits or sanctions people to die early because of the color of their skin, right? Like the color of your skin determines how much money you make. The, the color of your skin determines whether you get a vaccination, how much money you make determines whether you get a vaccination, right? So what we're trying to long-term abolish a society that can have these kinds of problems in the first place. And so between Arundhati and Fred and Stefano, like that's what I think is keeping me grounded, the potential for we can have, you know, in the future. What do you say to that, Mark, in terms of um, where you, I mean, you left off this book that you all need to buy um, on a, towards an abolitionist vision. There's like lots of highlighting and folded pages and all this stuff. Um, uh, what's towards an abolitionist vision for you? You know, that, that's, that, that's where I, 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 um, I end. And that, that's for me is, is, is the way out. I agree with everything Derek has said. Um, and, and as I, as I, um, I, I love talking to you all because all of you do the work every single day uh, of helping us imagine new possibilities, new outcomes, new futures, new selves, new worlds. And um, there's no single silver bullet to any of this stuff, but I think we have to begin by with, with the, the abolitionist vision. Um, the first thing I always think about when I and I've been I've been trying to write write through and think through what the abolitionist vision is, you know, for a long time now. 
Um, and, and let me just say, any, any, any thoughts I have on an abolitionist vision owes a huge conceptual and political debt to the work of black feminists and, and radical black feminists in particular. Um, I, I, I'll go so far as to say I don't have an original thought on this. I, I'm only standing on their shoulders. Um, and I, I think that part of why I, I think we need an abolitionist vision is um, because an abolitionist vision, I think, despite what how it's often framed, which is sort of what we don't want, right, where we don't want funding to go, what we want to shut down, who we what, what jobs we want to eliminate, what institutions we want to dismantle. I like to begin with an affirmative vision of, of the world we want to see. I like to begin by saying, what would the world look like for you or me if all of our needs were met? What would the world look like for us collectively if we could meet each other's collective needs? Um, certainly the most fundamental ones. And so for me, an abolitionist vision starts from that place of what it means to invest in people, um, to use a language of investment uh, and love rather than containment and blame. Um, part of why I, I think the, the work of black feminists is so important is because they've always, as I talk about it, we still hear, they, they've always managed to offer the most ambitious and robust uh, forward thinking, imaginative, creative freedom dreams. You know, Robin Kelly talked about the idea of the freedom dream. And, and, and I think, you know, when I think about the Combahee River Collective, when I think about Sojourner Truth, when I think about um, Bell Hooks, when I think about, we could go down the list, when I think about Ruth Wilson Gilmore or, or, or Angela Davis, I'm thinking about um, movements and individuals and ways of thinking that never exclusively focused on the conditions that they were wrestling with. Right. But but who understood the interconnectedness of these struggles and the need for a vision of liberation that was expansive beyond them and even included the people who were doing harm to them. Right. Which is which which is which is one of the great moral achievements of radical black feminism, in my estimation. You know, um, and, and, and so how, how how does the Columbia River Collective keep and hold space, not just to talk about gender oppression, which they certainly could have exclusively, but to talk about. Uh, internationalism, right? To, 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 to stand on the shoulders of those who were doing, talking about intercontinentalism, those who were talking about, uh, you know, decades after Bandung, thinking about what it meant to imagine brown folk as, as aligned nations, what, what it meant for them to speak out and critique capitalism, what it meant to speak out against the forms of police violence and state violence that were happening to the very black men who, again, were doing harm in and out of the house to them, right? Um, who were denying them opportunity, who were squeezing them out of the very same freedom movements. So for me, the, the abolitionist vision is an expansive one and it's, it's an inclusive one. What, what energizes me and excites me is that we've made great steps. I think about, uh, you know, at least like my era, Hiram's era, you know, we, we on the streets, you know, fighting, you know, think about Rodney King beat. I, mean, I, remember, I remember being on the streets of Philadelphia just trying to get them cops locked up. Some of us just wanted to get them cops fired. Some of us just wanted a black police chief. Some of us just wanted black folk on the police force. Some of us just wanted black folk to black police officers to live in a black neighborhood. I mean, think about how scaled down and whittled down our dreams were, as opposed to what this generation of young activists are doing, staying on the shoulders of critical resistance, standing on the shoulders of these black radical traditions. I'm not saying they started it, but they have been able to center and mainstream a conversation about what it means to imagine a world that is not yet. To imagine a world without prisons, to imagine a world without policing, to imagine a world where justice doesn't mean confinement, right? Where justice doesn't mean punishment, 
where we can imagine new selves and new possibilities. And for me, that's what an abolitionist vision means, that we're going to find what people's needs are and get there and not scale down our dreams to the level of that, which is our immediate experience. I'm borrowing the language of Howard Thurman there for a reason. Derek, I mentioned being part of the church, right? I mean, Howard Thurman in, 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 the, uh, in The Growing Edge talked about Jesus on the cross, right? You ain't got to be a religious person. This, this ain't my story. But 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 he talked about Jesus on the cross. And, and he said, you know, the story of the cross wasn't just about the crucifixion. It was about the resurrection, right? And just as the, 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 the Jesus was not a prisoner to the events of the cross, we don't have to be prisoners to the events of our lives. We don't have to reduce our, our dreams to the level or our aspirations to the level of that which is our immediate experience. So when 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 Walter Wallace gets shot by police holding a knife in Philadelphia, we don't have to debate whether or not the police could have detained him uh, or taken him down without killing him. We don't have to talk about whether they should have tackled him. We don't have to talk about how they could have done that differently. We can ask more ambitious questions. We can ask more audacious, we can hatch more audacious freedom dreams and say, what would it mean for his mom to have somebody else to call other than the police when he's having an episode? What would it mean for his needs to have been met before he ever got to a place where he's picking up a knife? What would it mean for there to be institutions and investments that took care of him or addressed him? This is what it means to have an abolitionist vision. And what we saw during the pandemic is the state tip its hand. We've been fighting. I remember being in, in Cobra meetings 20 years ago. We were talking about reparations and they were like, oh, man, we can't get no reparations. Our opponents, like, who, who, where are we going to find the money? Who are we going to give it to? How are they going to determine who's eligible? Where, where are they going? And, and, and it was all these what ifs. And then the state thought American capitalism was on its last legs and they found a trillion with a T dollars. They found money. They found who to give it to. I got PPP loans. I ain't talking out of school. I got my, my bookstore got a PPP loan. They sent us the money and the bank said, we will tell you instructions. Like when the bank will send you six figures and say to, a, to me, to a black force, they say, you know, we'll figure out the money. We'll figure out the details later. That's how much they needed capitalism to stay alive and stay afloat. Right. They figured it out when they needed to. When those COs didn't want to die, they said, well, maybe we can let some of these older offenders out who are nonviolent. When the police didn't want to get COVID, they said, well, you know, maybe that kid with an L in his pocket, maybe that little bit of cocaine ain't enough to, to, to arrest somebody for. We were able to decarcerate. We were able to excarcerate. We were able to get rid of cash bail. We were able to hatch reparations type visions. We were able to do the work of abolition when it benefited the state. So an abolitionist vision is also saying, wait a minute. We see what's possible now. We see what's on the horizon now. They can no longer tell us that it can't happen. We already knew it could happen. Mumia been telling us that. Angela been telling us that. Alice been talk telling us that. Sojourner and Harry been telling us that. Fannie Lou been telling us that. Malcolm been telling us that. But now we've taken that mainstream. Now it's in Minnesota City Council. Now it's in Congress. Now it's in the middle of a conversation. We might debate whether defunding is the right language. We might debate whether that's a scaled down vision of abolition. We can have those conversations, but we're having it in a mainstream space. So all I'm saying is for me, where we gotta go is to hold on to that. Don't go backwards. Don't settle for Kente Cloth and cops dancing with us, <laughs> right? Don't, don't, don't settle for the scaled down dream. That's the level of our immediate experience. Just as we, just as he was not prisoner to those events, we ain't got to be prisoner to these events. We can imagine a world outside the logic of the prisoner altogether. 
All right, y'all. Skype and the internet is on fire right now. Um, thanks to these two mics dropping all over the place. And I just remembered when I first met you, Mark, which I, <laughs> I was at those Encobra meetings. <laughs> like we've been knowing each other for a long time. And, right. <laughs> yeah. Same. I got to catch a train. I apologize. I got to catch a train. I'm in DC and I got to go on this train in the next eight minutes. So I'm about to be running. But thank y'all, man. Thank y'all for supporting the book. And I'm going to do a cheap plug. I have a book coming out in two weeks, also called. Uh, except for Palestine, the limits of progressive politics. So please get We Still Here, but also think about Except for Palestine because yeah. we got a lot of work to do. Uh, a ton of work to do. Yes. Thanks for being here tonight, Thank Mark. So Safe so travels on I the way home. Peace. Hey, peace. Thank you, Mark. Um, so the, you raised this question earlier. Really, it felt really important to us when we were discussing the recommendations, right? Remember we were sitting there being like, okay, we got recommendations for each other, right? Masks social distancing, wash your hands. We got recommendations for supporting each other, mutual aid, stepping in where the state is failing us to say, to, to make sure that we survive, to save each other and save ourselves. Um, and we got demands for the state because they have our money. <laughs> so they should be um, doing what, what we're talking about, right? But in both the context of our recommendations around the, the pandemic and also in the context of the defund work that the hub um, is um also supporting and, and hosting a lot of work around. Um, the question is what you said, is the state itself recuperable? Um, is it something that can distribute resources? Like a, even if there were no cops, could it distribute resources like a vaccine without policing people in the distribution of the resources? Um, how, how can we move forward um, certainly with the state as it is, but also in those freedom dreams that we're having, how do we see the state um, in the context of all the that's been laid out um, by Derica and Mark, um, I mean, these are, these are conversations that that are that are being that are being had in different spaces, right? And for me, this question of the state continues to come up, and especially when we use when we use terms like abolition, liberation, self determination, right? That uh, Oftentimes, a depoliticizer is kind of thrown out there because it's it's the rhetoric of the moment. But they they do mean things. They do mean things, right? And we have a responsibility to the communities who are not in our niche activist spaces, who are not in movement, right? Um, to be able to articulate that to them and, and and help them understand the vision that we are getting from them, right? And and, and rearticulating back, but in a much clearer way, as Chairman Fred would put it, make it plain, right? That, that, that how do we engage the community um, in this struggle, right, to win? How do you dare to struggle, right, you dare to win? Um, and so for me, when we're talking about this in the abolition, we're talking about the police, and when I mentioned that the police are a part of the tool for class antagonisms, right, that, that, that the police are here to maintain the social order of the state as dictated, as Mark pointed out, right, by big capital corporations, he, he mentioned Jeff Bezos and the FBI going after you know individual cells of, of, of PPE, right? That mere representations of our communities in the form of politicians and these executive offices doesn't work. The United States has hated black people since black people arrived here. The United States exists on consumption of black bodies and black labor. 
right? And this goes along with, with Native communities and, and everyone else um, in between. And so for me, the question is, when we talk about the state, which in itself, and, and Andre, you, you raised this in, in a conversation we had, inherently itself is a policing mechanism, right? In the way it distributes resources or doesn't distribute resources to our schools, to our communities, right? It creates these situations where our, our folks are put in, 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 in these conditions that the, the previous panelists had articulated. Then what are we ultimately saying about the state when we say abolish the carceral system, abolish the police. And oftentimes I don't feel enough organizers go that far, right? They don't go into that understanding of the role of the state as a tool of domination of the ruling class, of basically one class over another. They don't understand the, or, or excuse me, aren't articulating enough an understanding of the role of mutual aid as an alternative to the state itself, right? If we're, if we're leaving in an anarchist tradition, right? As, as an alternative to the state itself, because we cannot rely on the state because the state was never created for us, right? Um, now in a country of about 380 million people, you're gonna need some sort of mechanism to move resources and to do that sort of thing. And these are the debates that need to be had. I think one problem that exists, right? And, and this is me coming from the organization, right, from the Community Resource Hub, is that we are bound, we are confined to this nonprofit industrial complex. And this level of ideological conversation and thinking and planning and strategizing can't happen within the confines of the nonprofit industrial complex because for a lot of organizations, right, they too have to engage in the exasperation of, of contradictions and antagonisms to be seen as worthy of funding from the same billionaires and, and, and multimillionaires who are, are profiting off of these class antagonists, who are getting rich off of the, uh, off of the pandemic, right? That is the, 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 the nutso contradiction that we live in inside of this social justice world, right? And so for me is when we talk about the role of the state and Mark laid out very clearly, right? The state could, if it wanted to, give people a living wage. It could, if it wanted to, pay folks enough money to survive this pandemic and, and, and pay people to stay at home, right? Pay people to, to, to eat. They could provide all the resources if they wanted to, but there's no profit in that, right? And so then what is the utility of us continuing to fight and make reforms to a system that ultimately just wants to kill us. And if it can't kill us, it wants to lock us up. And if it can't lock us up, then it forces the rest of us to keep making profit for them. Right? What kind of state do you want? And when are we gonna fight for that? And if you don't want a state, because you feel like, again, the state is inherently capitalist and the state is inherently a policing mechanism, right? Then again, right? What is the work that needs to happen to get us there? And those are the conversations I'm really interested in. Because if you say abolish the police and abolish prisons, you say much more than I just want to be safe in my community. You have removed the armed bodies of men, as Lenin put it, right? The armed bodies of men that protect the ruling class from everyone else that they're oppressing, right? And then what happens when we're on that field, right? Um, at the same time, just to throw another contradiction and, and, and point that has to be debated is in these freedom dreams of this liberated land that, that, that we want to live in, right? Without a police force and without those armed bodies of men, how do you protect your victories, right? How do you stop the counter-revolutionary forces from coming back and undermining all of that that you have created as they try to do in Venezuela, as they did in Bolivia? 
right? And so when we say we want these bodies and these institutions removed because we're looking at this this dream society, um, ultimately a, a, a classless society, right? What do we do about those forces? Those same forces who attack the Capitol, right? With police support, right? A policing agency at the federal level, at the local level, at the state level that is inundated and flooded with white supremacists. And this is known because the FBI are the ones who put the, the report out there, right? That the Proud Boys leader is outed as a, you know, a, a federal informant. Yet these same federal agencies allowed this man to call for violence in the streets of Portland, call for violence in the streets of the South, and call for violence in, at, at the Capitol, right? Then you have to take a step back and be like, whoa, can you even reform not just the police, but the state itself? Because here comes Joe Biden, Right. And is taking plucking all of those folks from the swamp and putting him in his administration as well. And then telling you and I that we have to somehow come to this unity and, and it, with with those same fascists. Right. With those same, uh, uh, you know, enemies of, of, of our people that we have to somehow unify for the, for the well-being of, of the country. Whose country? Right. Whose state? Whose well-being? Who, who are we talking about? And so for me, you know, that is my that is my call to to the rest of the folks in within the nonprofit world is that we need to think beyond the next grant proposal. We need to think beyond what the funders want to see or what the funders want to hear, because Andre Richie, you and I know very well that the funders really are interested in policing right now. Next year, it could be growing tofu. Next year, it could be the plants, right? They 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 decide what what they decide for whatever reason, right? Again, because of profit. And so, how do we make the most of this situation now? And how do we clearly articulate that to our people and not move beyond the people, but move with the people, right? And not get too caught up in revolutionary jargon and rhetoric that doesn't ultimately land with the everyday mother who lost her baby here in Philadelphia, right? But help her understand what we are fighting for is what Derek has said. We want to fix those windows. We can fix the window, right? Um, how do we do that? How do we move with those folks and not be on them and get also caught up in the adventurism of, of you know, activist direct actions, right? Like, I'll, I'll stop there. Hiram, just uh, so much, so much. We need to hear more Hiram Rivera in the world. I don't know why we don't. Um, Derica, can you just take us home? For you, where do you land on this question? What's on the other side of the portal in terms of, um, the questions that Hiram raised, um, and then we'll we'll leave it there for folks to. Well, I think on. we should we should probably wrap. I don't know what, how to follow the, the evangelizing the masses the way that he just did. I'm ready to sign up for our army. I'm waiting for <laughs> Hiram to start doing tactical training for the movement. I, that there is that is the that 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 is the that is the, yes yes. I said my I said my piece. That's I'm I'm like beaming because it's so good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, um, all of you and Mark and Absentia for just um, an incredible conversation tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Pascal, for being the person who crunches through all of the data that's coming in and makes sense of it for us um, and makes it possible for us to have these conversations based on what we already know is existing in the world, but also with like the details of it, right? Because if we don't have the details, then we can't um, build the world that we're, that we're going towards if we don't have the details of exactly how this one is working Andre, Andre, and really quick I, I want to thank you as someone who has spent decades in this struggle and and someone who who 
on whose shoulders so many of us stand, right? Um, and the amount of work that that you contribute to this behind the scenes, um, I don't, I don't think can ever be fully, fully articulated to everyone else who, who's watching. So, a massive, massive thank you, not only for our report, but for all of the work and the life's work that you have dedicated yourself um, during this 2020 that that you and I both know has been extremely, extremely difficult. Um, an incredible amount of gratitude and thank you to you for, for everything that you continue to do. Thank you so much, Hiram. I mean, I definitely, as we were talking tonight, was like, oh yeah, we were all out in those streets uh, in Canada uh, around Rodney King and here we are and here how far we've come. And it's an honor and privilege to be in struggle alongside all of you um, and especially my sister in struggle and co-founder Derica Purnell. So thank you um, for being here today. Um, thank you, Hiram, again, for believing in this project, hosting it, and then helping us right now frame all of the questions about what it, where the direction it points us in. Um, and we um, are out. Haymarket Press. Um, everybody, buy this book. Just buy it. It's a small book. It's a lot of stuff in it. It's really easy to read. It's, an inter- it's a series of interviews where you'll just get all this wisdom that um, Mark just laid out and read our report. And if you can't read our report, check out the memes that are on our um, Twitter feed. And also want to highlight um, the project that I'm part of, Interrupting Criminalization, also created a set of postcards um, and posters that sort of are visual representations of these conversations and also conversation starters. So we can be having these conversations among ourselves, both in terms of on individual level, what we need to stay safe in these conditions, but also what's the world we're trying to build and how do we get there. So um, and Andre, I just want to make one more plug community resource hub for folks out there check us out communityresourcehub.org there's a resource library with up to almost 600 resources of reports toolkits articles everything and anything pertaining to policing it's all there check that out and and, and absolutely because everything you need everything we need we have everything we need to get free in each other's hands and so let's um get it and let's get free so thanks y'all for being with us tonight Um, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.